life is full of adjustments, isn't it? As people grow and change, as circumstances change, as life just kind of does its thing. And you have those moments where you need to kind of reassess how we're doing life individually, how we're doing life collectively. Uh, we had a family meeting yesterday. Has anyone had those in their family? And maybe the family meeting is a bunch of uni students getting together and talking about why the dishes never happen. Or maybe it's more like in our, in our case uh, where it's parents and children living in the same home. You know, they, they take many kinds of uh, shapes and sizes out of the way that we live in homes together. But family life has changed a fair bit for us over the last few years because we've gone from having two adults and a bunch of uh, children who are at school, and that's kind of the regular rhythm of life, uh, to having four adults, um, and two of those adults are now working, you know, far away and so they're not here sometimes but they're back sometimes or studying and getting into new rhythms and trying to maintain relationships that were easy to maintain when you're at school because you're stuck together for however many hours a day that is um, but now you're trying to catch up on weekends and you know balance that with part-time work and study and there's there's all of this complexity that wasn't there a few years ago who's ever been through that stage of life now I know who to come see, right? <laughs> so so we, we got together to have a meeting to kind of figure that out because our, our individual lives have become a lot wider and a lot more complicated. What does that do to life together? It puts stresses on, doesn't it? You know, the, the job chart that used to work when everybody's routines look like that, it doesn't work when you're not even in the same postcode anymore or that's the time I want to go catch up with my friends or that's when I'm working. So all of a sudden we have to rework all the rhythms of how life looks for us to develop, in a sense, what Paul was talking about, what are these new holy habits? What, what, what is life going to look like as individuals and as a family in order to be helpful? So we got together, and even making a time to get together was pretty tough, but we got there. Uh, we sat down, and I started the meeting saying, this is what we're going to talk about, this is what we're not going to talk about. And I just talked about a few of the values and guiding principles that we wanted to um, see um, as, as kind of flavouring our discussion together. And then I prayed. And, and why did I lead into the meeting that way? Well, because I want to, for our family to live with God's presence recognising he's here, and live by God's principles. I mean, that, that's how we believe family life works. And so we, we embarked on our meeting in that way and we all got to have a discussion and it was a really, really helpful thing. Um, but like I mentioned earlier, those sorts of discussions are required all the time and perhaps with greater frequency than they've ever been required before. Because the pace of change in people's lives seems to be, and I don't know how it is in your world, uh, but we seem to be needing to make more and more adjustments to those rhythms. We're dealing with more and more complexity as the world becomes more and more complicated. So what does that look like in your school or your workplace or in your friendship group or your sporting club or in the people that you, you live with at home and so on? How are we managing the complexity of that to go well? There's, there's something that affects all groups of people and how well we are able to do life together. And it's a balance between these two things. There's personal autonomy on the one hand. And so in my family's case, uh, for those uh, of my children who are now adults, they've got a lot more freedom and a lot more opportunity. Um, they've got licences and in one case a vehicle and you know, all these things. That, <laughs> yeah, just one case. Um, uh, all these opportunities to go and live their life their way. And as a parent... Isn't that what you want for your kids? You want them to become more and more autonomous, to make their own decisions and to figure out what is life going to look like for me now that I'm an adult myself. But the choices they make affect how everything else happens in the family. So as well as having personal autonomy, there's also there's this level of institutional authority. That sounds very kind of 
kind of heavy, doesn't it? What does that mean? Well, an institution is just any bunch of people who get together for any purpose. So our family is an institution. Um, and we ought to be able to say as a family, you know what, those lifestyle choices aren't working for us. Um, you never ever doing the things that you agreed to do, that's not making family life good. The, the family has to have a level of authority. Otherwise, life together just doesn't work. Um, take that into your workplace, take that into your sporting club. There's always a balance between individuals and what they want to do and, well, this is what we need for this thing to work. We need you to rock up with this regularity. Uh, you want to play on Saturday, you better come to training on Wednesday. There's, there's always going to be things that the, the group works out to say, this is the standard around here, this is what we expect. So this isn't rocket science, is it? This is just real life. We, we do this stuff all the time. And sometimes relationships in any group that we're a part of, family, a workplace, a school, you know, a sporting club, sometimes when there are pressures and people are getting frustrated at each other, it's because there needs to be a conversation about how our own choices are affecting the institution and about how the rules of the institution and the way things are done are affecting our freedom to actually do what we feel is right and what we need to do. Um, and there's got to be a, a both sides discussion on that kind of stuff. And you've seen how, over time, relationships get more and more tense when those conversations don't happen. And you've seen examples of when those conversations have happened, but they've just blown up and not gone well at all. What do you mean I need to do this? You can't tell me that. Or, you know, something along those lines. Where is freedom to be found? Well, recently we've seen one such uh, example of the, the tension between institutional authority and individual autonomy play out like this. There's a, an anti-transgender rights rally going on. There's a, a pro-trans uh, rally going on. And there you've got uh, Lord Sebastian Coe, who's recently come out as somebody who's in charge of an institution, World Athletics, and said, look, we're going to make some rules about how we deal with the fact that people now have the autonomy to do things with their bodies that they never used to be able to do. And, and we have to figure out how that affects us. And so we've made these rules. Um, now, did everyone agree with the rules that he made? No, and they're going to be on a journey of figuring that out as an organisation. But he's trying to navigate in a, in a diplomatic way and in a helpful way, how, you, how do we deal with the complexity of the world we live in right now? And as you see above him, there are, there are plenty of examples of people having the same issue that they're facing, but probably not approaching that in a way that is helpful to everybody. Um, and so that's, that's the kind of world that we are in at the moment and we're thinking about well, how do we navigate that in the circumstances that we find ourselves and where is freedom to be found, freedom to flourish, free to do life well as an individual and to be able to make choices that I want to make and to pursue the life that I feel called to pursue and also live in good relationship with others and how, how do we navigate that so we're flourishing in both those contexts. See, freedom is not the same thing as personal autonomy. I don't know if you know that. That's a very um, anti-cultural value. We think that freedom is the ability to choose whatever you want to do. Is that freedom? Well, I've just told you it's not, so you better agree with me. It's not freedom, and it should be obvious that it's not freedom. What does life in our home feel like if we just say to all the kids, look, just do dishes whenever you feel like it, guys. You know, you, you, you'll make the right call. Things are going to break down, and nobody's going to be free to enjoy life. Our relationships are going to suffer, uh, the quality of our lives are going to suffer. Without some sort of agreed standards and rules and responsibilities and obligations, life just doesn't work. Autonomy, which by the, main, by the way just simply means self-rule, if that doesn't have some constraints around it, you are not going to have the life that you long for. 
doesn't matter how much you pursue it, if you're not uh, allowing the institutions around you or some authority around you to actually say, no, this is okay and this is not okay, no matter how hard you go, you will never, ever be happy. You will never flourish. That's something our society doesn't quite get at the moment, but it's something we need to understand. But at the same time, freedom is not when you give institutions all the authority. Hey, uh, Mike, you're the pastor of the church. Just tell me what I should do and I'll do it. Is, is that going to allow you to be free to live the life God's called you to live? No. If we say as parents, um, even though we've got adult children, this is when you're going to go to bed and this is what, who you can see and this is you know, what you're going to study, if we try to control every part of their lives, are they going to do well? No, of course not. So freedom to flourish isn't when you hand over authority to institutions either. But there's got to be some kind of balance, doesn't there? And I would hope that that's pretty... You know, obvious, and it's not rocket science, and you're all sort of going, well, duh. Um, but sometimes we actually need to be very explicit and say, this is the tension that we're all living in. We're all trying to figure out where's the right balance of letting institutions say, this is how things ought to work around here, and this is what we expect of you, and being free to make my own choices. And how are we going to do that really, really well in community with one another, in all the different ways that we are doing life together? We've been looking at the Great Commission and the beautiful thing about the Great Commission, particularly when we think of how it's going really badly uh, in different ways in our society and we see people getting increasingly angry and bitter and kind of turning against others when they don't agree, Jesus actually says this is how you get the balance right between your own autonomy and between the right of a community to tell you this is what we expect. It's simple. Obey me. <laughs> Follow me. I'll show you how to do this. Being a disciple of Jesus is the perfect blend. It's the perfect uh, balance of how you can be free as an individual and how you need to let others have some sort of authority in your life. Because what did we discover being a disciple is all about? Well, it's being about a person whose whole life revolves around following Jesus. You've got autonomy to do that. You need to make decisions about what it looks like in your life to follow Jesus. I can't do that for you. You've got autonomy in that area. But at the same time, being a disciple, as we saw over the last couple of weeks, is being part of a community where you are following Jesus together. And there are some things that you're just going to have to learn to agree on. Even though you might disagree, you have to actually say, well, this is how we're going to do it. Um, this is the level of agreement we need. This is how we're going to work out our differences. And again, it's not rocket science, but it's, it's nice to know that Jesus has actually given us a mechanism to figure this stuff out. So this is what he said. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is here through his Holy Spirit. We have his commands recorded for us in the Holy Scriptures. And they will allow us to do life well, whether we're making our own individual choices or whether as a group we're deciding together this is how things ought to work around here. And so we're going to let Jesus speak into that. As we step back, we fast forwarded to the end of Matthew's Gospel, uh, just so that we could see where we're going. We're going to step back into how we've been travelling through over the last few years as we've been going through Matthew steadily. And we're up to Matthew 26. Uh, which in the goodness of God is a story where Jesus is actually showing us, well, this is what that looks like as you seek to do it together. So let's dive into the story together. Matthew 26, and we're going to go through verse 1, and we're going to continue through to verse 16, and we'll step through it bit by bit. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, 
Jesus has just finished his fifth great discourse. There's kind of five movements through Matthew's Gospel. And he's just come to the end of what we call the Olivet Discourse. So when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he told his disciples, you know that the Passover takes place after two days and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Now, these two verses set up everything that's going to happen over the next 14 verses. So as we see uh, a story unfold, you've got to kind of let these two verses frame how you think about that story. So what is Jesus uh, saying here? He's just finished saying all these things. He's been talking to them most recently about how you need to live while I have left and gone to heaven to prepare a place for you and until I return uh, to take you to be where I am. And the very last thing he was talking about was how we treat the poor and the oppressed. And this is how it finished. Then they too will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? Then he will answer them, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, I'm not going to re-preach that. We did that quite a few months ago during last year. But Jesus, in the last thing that he was teaching about, was basically saying, hey, while I am preparing a place for you, I'm also going to be paying attention to how you live here, and I want you to treat the poor and the oppressed, the marginalised, in the way that you would treat me. How you treat people matters. So take this seriously. It's as serious enough for me to give you this very um, ominous warning about what will happen to those who have no concern for the poor and oppressed. They're basically showing they don't know me and are not part of my kingdom. So take this really, really seriously. So he's just been speaking about that. And then what else did he say? And also in two days I'm going to be handed over and crucified. Those two things are really, really important as we continue in our story. And this is how the story unfolds from here. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the courtyard of the high priest who was named Caiaphas. And they conspired to arrest Jesus in a treacherous way and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, so there won't be rioting among the people. Now here you have leaders in the community. So these are guys with institutional authority. They decide what goes on around here. And as you've been following through Matthew's Gospel, Jesus has come up and he's kind of teaching people in some different ways and they're not agreeing and they're thinking this is going to lead to disaster. So they've decided on everyone's behalf. Uh, We don't want people like that in our community. We don't want influences like that in people's lives. We, as the guardians of the religious life of our country and as the high court in the land, we've decided he is dangerous, he is misleading and he needs to be gotten rid of. And so they're using their authority to get rid of Jesus. So these guys who should have been teaching people God's ways and leading people in following God are actually leading the way in killing God's son. It's this ultimate irony that's being uh, displayed here in the story as it unfolds. The decision about when to obey God's rules and when to set them aside somehow always seems to work out in the favour of the people who are with power. Have you ever noticed that in life? Um, There's always No rules are perfect, but the decision about when the rules should apply and when they shouldn't apply, the people in power tend to make make sure that it seems to fall in their favour most of the time. And that's what these guys are doing. He's a threat to us, our position, our power, our wealth. Um, We think the rules justify us in putting him to death, even though we're breaking a whole bunch of rules in the way that we go about that. So that's what these people in power do. You know, if you're somebody who's been hurt by people in power... There's some comfort to find in the story here. 
Um, there's some details in the story that I, I don't want us to miss because as much power as Caiaphas and these chief priests and these elders of the people had, uh, they didn't have ultimate power. When did they say they were planning to put Jesus to death? After the feast. Because they know there's going to be a whole lot of people around and this could go very badly very quickly. And so they think, you know what, we're going to make sure this happens you know, in a week or two, maybe a month or two, but we're definitely going to get there. When did Jesus just say, in verse 2, that it was going to happen? Today's time. Who got that right? Of course he did. So you've got God who, even though there are these people using the power that they have to be abusive, to be damaging, to be self-interested, um, to, to completely um, you know, think of the heartbreak that not only Jesus went through but his followers went through, just how much damage those guys did, and it seemed out of control and disastrous. Without excusing their behaviour in any way, without minimising the pain that it caused, isn't it nice to see that God was still in charge even through those horrible circumstances? That God was fulfilling his plan to save all humanity. See, these guys thought putting Jesus to death would be the end of things. It wasn't the end. It was the beginning. It's what gives us new life. It's what made heaven possible. It's what makes our relationship with God through his Holy Spirit right now possible. It's what makes the community of the church possible. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. And what these guys did was part of the story of how God made that happen. Again, not minimising the effect that they had on people, not excusing the roles that they played, but remembering that God was still at work to do his good purposes. And what I've discovered in life is that when we become so fixed on the people who are doing wrong and the power that they hold and the injustice, and those things are terrible and we ought to be concerned about it. But if we lose sight of God in the midst of that, then something happens to our own hearts um, that's not good for us. And something happens to the way that we engage and seek to solve problems that doesn't lead to good outcomes. But if you can keep your eyes on God, that will protect you from allowing this sort of stuff to warp you, uh, to, to make you somebody who's fighting against God's purposes instead of for them. So keep your eyes on what God is doing, even when it seems that those in power are accomplishing their evil purposes. The story continues, though, because... These people who are in power, they're not followers of Jesus. How does Jesus change the way that communities work out the stuff that we were talking about earlier? Well, the story continues like this. While Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman approached him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. She poured it on his head as he was reclining at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. What kind of word is indignant? It's stronger than, oh, I wouldn't have done that. Like they've, they've taken real offence. How dare she do that? That is so wrong. That's, that's how they're feeling. Why this waste, they asked. This might have been sold for a great deal and given to the poor. So here you've got a bunch of guys and you've got one lady and they've got very different ideas about what ought to have gone on in this group setting of which they are all a part. Who's right? Who's in the wrong? We're told in John's Gospel, and the story is in John chapter 12, if you'd like to read it afterward, that uh, this very expensive perfume was worth about a year's wages. Just let that sink in. A year's wages. Just... That explains maybe a little bit of how they're feeling. 
and, and the perfume was of a, a very pungent nature because it was meant to last not only for one person's lifetime, but this was handed down as a gift from generation of women to others. So you might not even use it all up in your lifetime. This stuff was very, very precious and you used it very, very sparingly. So just think, you know, engage your senses a little bit. If something that was meant to last a whole lifetime of perfuming somebody on those special occasions when they used it, if you just pour all of that out at once, what's that going to smell like? I, I get hay fever. I sneeze a bit. Um, it just sends my senses into over. Oh, I just can't imagine that you know, powerful. Uh, John's Gospel tells us the aroma filled the whole house, and I don't doubt it. Um, so they've been enjoying this lovely meal together. This lady comes in, pours out a year's wages, and just stinks the whole place up. And the thing is, you're not meant to pong out the party. You could be providing for the poor. I mean, isn't that a reasonable thing for them to be thinking and feeling? Are they right here? What a waste. Something that could have been really... If you only put a dab on him... It would have been fine, but to pour the whole thing out? That's crazy. No wonder they were upset. Can't even taste my food, for crying out loud, with that pong around here. So there's this conflict about how you're seeing this. Jesus' disciples were taken aback. They were not impressed at all. And again, remembering, he's just been talking about how we're supposed to be helping the poor. And you've just poured out all this money. What are you thinking? So they're indignant. But as we read the conversation that comes, as right as they are that Jesus is concerned about the poor, they're actually blind to the beauty of what's going on in this story. Because Jesus, yes, has just talked about how important it is that we treat the poor well, that we treat them as if they were Jesus himself. But he's also spoken about the fact that in two days he's going to die. He's going to be betrayed by one of those leaders he's been grooming for the past few years. He's going to be denied, I don't know that guy, by the very person he's entrusted leadership of his group to. The rest are going to run away and leave him. He's going to be tortured, slandered, mocked, ridiculed, ultimately crucified. He is about to go through the worst hell you could imagine. And he's going to be treated so badly by so many people. How do you think he feels about that? He's not looking forward to it, is he? If you know the story of the Garden of Gethsemane, you know how much anguish he was in. But a couple of days before he has to go through that horror, somebody comes up to him and pours out her love on him in an extravagant and generous way. Because she heard him say that I'm about to be crucified. And I don't know what her thought process was, but Jesus says she's done a really beautiful thing. We'll go on and read about that in a sec. Now, the disciples, they weren't seeing it from that angle. They, they were agreed, this is the most important way to view the situation. It's about poverty and about waste and about all those things Jesus was just saying. They're completely blind to the other thing Jesus had just said and how that affects the situation. Don't you find life can get like that? Sometimes we are so passionate about some of the things that Jesus has said that we aren't actually open to seeing things from a different point of view and remembering other things that Jesus said which are just as important in life. And sometimes we can't do both things at the same time. Sometimes we've got to you know, do that more and sometimes we've got to be more concerned about that one. But to sit back and criticise somebody because they were seeing it from another point of view, that's what these guys were doing. And let's see how Jesus then addresses it. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She's done a noble thing for me. You will always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. 
By pouring this perfume on my body, she has prepared me for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And sure enough, 2,000 years later, on the other side of the world, where the gospel has spread, we're talking about what this lady has done. And is the point of Jesus saying this, that he wants this lady to be held up as, you know, she's the hero and the disciples were the villains? Well, no, it's actually not the point at all. The point is that Jesus is reinforcing some values in his kingdom and in his church that are really, really important and which are demonstrated in this story that he is telling. There's only one hero in the Bible, that's Jesus. Everyone else has their strengths and weaknesses, their mistakes and their, their failures as well as the times that they, they um, get it right. Um, but in this case, Jesus wants us to learn something that will affect how we live too. He's teaching us how careful we need to be when we think our way of seeing things is the only right way. Even if we have some verses to back it up, is it really the only way to see any particular situation? In this case, it wasn't. And there's an interesting subtlety in the way that Matthew tells this story. And it fits with Matthew's uh, pattern in his gospel. He's always turning things on their head. So you've got a situation, a social situation, where you've got the older and, and the wiser, and Jesus says, be like the kids. He's always flipping around the way that people think that life ought to work. And in this situation, it's really interesting. At the beginning of the story, you've got Caiaphas listed. Listen to how Jesus finishes it. Then one of the twelve, a man called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they weighed out 30 pieces of silver for him. And from that time, he started looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. So while this nameless woman is giving up her wealth in order to honour Jesus, Judas is gaining wealth by betraying him. And it's interesting that Caiaphas at the beginning was mentioned and Judas at the end of the story is mentioned. Why isn't the woman named? Why don't we get to find out who she was when we got to find out who those other significant characters were? And you might ask, well, maybe Matthew didn't even know who it was. Maybe it's just some woman who's come in and done this and she's gone. It's like, wow. But Matthew knew her very well, in fact. Um, John's Gospel tells us that it was Mary. You know, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, Mary, friends of Jesus. They visited all the time, stayed with them. Uh, so this is somebody who is well known to Matthew. Why doesn't he just, it'd be so much easier to say Mary rather than this woman. Why doesn't he let us know that? And why doesn't he let us know, like John does in his account, that the person who spoke up in this dinner and said, hey, you, know, you shouldn't have done that, you should have given the money to the poor, that was Judas. Why, why didn't he include the names of how the story unfolded? Um, I think there's actually a, a really good reason. Because if you know the story of Jesus and you're reading this, you'd go, Mary, oh, she's somebody who knows Jesus and he's got a close relationship with her. Judas, he's the guy who betrayed her. So it becomes really obvious who's right and who's wrong probably because we kind of know where Mary's heart is at and we know where Judas's heart is at. So we'd look at that situation and go, oh, well, clearly, you know, Mary was probably doing the right thing. And we wouldn't be surprised at all when it turns out, yeah, she was in the right. But when you don't know who it was who brought that uh, anointing oil, and when you don't know that it was Judas leading, it was just all of the disciples who agreed about this, that changes the balance of who you expect to be right and who you expect to be wrong. If you're looking at it as a normal person, who would you expect to be right? This lady who was probably very emotional, pouring out you know, this incredibly wealthy, uh, this incredibly uh, uh, expensive resource? Or would you trust the people who Jesus had been training for three years, 
who travelled with him day after day, the leaders of his movement uh, into the future, would you think that they were more likely to get it right or this lone woman who's crashed the party and, and made a mess of things? I think most of us are probably going to say, well, probably it's those guys in charge. Probably it's the ones who travel with Jesus and have heard more of his teaching and, and have been given positions of authority. Probably their judgment's going to be the right one. But it wasn't. And I think that's kind of a subtle point that Matthew is making by keeping those names out of it. He wants us to see the imbalance there. One person versus a whole community of people. They all think like this. She thinks like this. They've got positions of power. She has none. And he's helping us to see that you know, that, that sort of stuff is irrelevant. Just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean I'm going to get it right every time when I have an opinion on how anything should happen in God's church. Do I have certain advantages? Yeah, of course I do because I get time to know people, I get time to study the scriptures and so on. doesn't mean my voice is any more important in any discussion of how things ought to work. And you know what I've discovered in my time in ministry? The best decisions that the churches I have been in have ever made weren't my idea. Because my job is actually to help the process work, <laughs> to help people share their voice and to, and to help the process of discernment so we love each other well, trusting the outcome is going to be what God wants. That's what was missing here. Nobody did that until Jesus stepped in and said, hey guys, you need to stop because you're not seeing everything you need to see. You need to hear a voice that you haven't yet heard. So may that be our experience of what our life is like because we are in a situation like the photos I showed you on screen earlier where it's increasingly hostile as we try to figure out what are we going to do about this issue and that issue And because the world is changing, we feel things strongly and we don't know how our institutions are going to survive when people's freedom to do whatever they feel like is, is more than it's ever been you know, and there's tension. Let's not buy into the tension. Let's do what Jesus does, step back, look into the heart. Let's make sure we hear from each other really well, trust each other a little bit and see what's God saying to us in the midst of all of this. So as we close, I want to go back to this idea. We're always being tempted to be completely autonomous. I'll do what I want, thanks. I'll have my opinions um, and I'll go my way. And we're always tempted in any institutions to try work things to our own advantage or to make sure our point of view is the only one heard, just like Caiaphas did with his, his cronies. What Jesus is calling us is to be a community which is very explicit. Guys, in this moment, we want to hear from Jesus. Who's got a scripture? We're not just going to listen to select ones. We're going to listen to the whole counsel of what the scriptures say. We're going to allow the Spirit to speak through all of us. And we're going to arrive together at the next step in our journey as a group of people who are serious about making Jesus the centre of our community. That's what church is. We have different structures, different mechanisms, different systems. That's okay. Some systems do better at making sure that the rules are good. Some systems do better at giving people freedom. Our job's not to judge any other system. Our job's to figure out how does that look for us. Let's make sure we do that. Let's pray.